Brazilian construction giant Odebrecht and his subsidiary Brascom. The second involves the Israeli pharmaceutical company Teva Pharmaceuticals. The episode is about uh, 30 minutes. I think you will find it a fascinating deep dive into these two sports and actions. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA. Mike, I wanted to see if we could take a bit of a deep dive into two of the uh, year-end's most stunning FCPA enforcement actions. Uh, we had uh, Odebrecht, Brascom out of Brazil, and then Teva Pharmaceutical, which is a Israeli uh, domicile company but also has operations here in the United States. They uh, were just um, rather stunning in both uh, the breadth and scope of the bribery schemes that they had going on and as uh, as a result, the fines, of course, were uh, equally stunning. Odebrecht uh, coming in at uh, number one in the all-time global anti-corruption enforcement uh, fine range of between 4.5 billion to 2.6 billion, um, with 424 million paid to the U.S. Treasury, and then we had Teva uh, coming in at 519 million. But I wanted to maybe start with Odebrecht and just get sort of your initial impressions on uh, uh, the schemes, the scope, uh, the jurisdiction, and, and what it might mean for global anti-corruption enforcement going forward. Well, I think, um, I mean, th it's a stunning prosecution in a number of ways. Um, first is the the coordination, and I've always said, by the way, that we have a great MLAT treaty and a great relationship, uh, U.S. law enforcement and Brazil, I know from experience. Um, and that was evidenced by this settlement. But it, uh, also the Swiss prosecutors were part of the settlement. So we have three, Brazil, Switzerland, and the U.S. Um, I think there was some indication, and I can't remember exactly how I got this information, to be honest with you, but that the, and I may have read it in another, you know, report or whatever, but that the company, uh, the companies involved basically saw the U.S. as a way to facilitate a global settlement. And that may be because there may have been certain difficulties or it wasn't so clear that whatever would happen in Brazil would necessarily be respected by the U.S. or the Swiss uh, governments in terms of resolving the prosecutions. Um, and it, what this said to me is that the U.S. is willing to be a broker, in a sense. In other words, to bring people to the table and try to resolve uh, jointly a uh, international, you know, bribery or corruption prosecution. Um, and I think that that actually is a is a good development um, because I think, on the one hand, it brings, uh, you know, sort of one-stop shopping for companies in this problem. I mean, we've had situations where a company for the same course of conduct would have to resolve the case with five different um, entities, sovereigns, you know, countries. And I think here what was, gr what was well done by the U.S. was orchestrating this, bringing people together and getting people to sign off on it in terms of the Brazilians and the Swiss. 
And what's even more stunning to me is that, you know, Brazil is where most of this conduct occurred uh, or most of the or most of their liability lies since Odebrecht and Brascom are both, you know, Brazilian based companies. Obviously, they have global operations. But to me, who would be the logical prosecutor on this case? And uh, yet it was the U.S., I think, taking sort of the driver's seat in resolving this. So I think that raises a whole host of issues and risks uh, when you start to consider this. So now, for example, let's say in the future, uh, and just to take an example, the Swiss or the Brazilians discover you know, a bribery scheme with a few incidents in their country, and all of a sudden, because of their well-established relationship with the U.S., they can pass that information to the U.S., and now the U.S. launches, let's say, a larger bribery investigation. It means that the risks of detection and follow-up have gone up significantly for companies. Uh, and I hate to you know, sound like a scaremonger or anything like that, but it means that we, we can be exposed or a company can be detected uh, anywhere in the globe now that could have implications back to the United States if they're a U.S. company or subject to the FCPA. So let me pick up on a couple of those points because um, I think uh, it, it was very interesting. And let me just preface it with in the ACI National FCPA Conference held in Washington in late November, early December of this year, Kara Brockmeyer and Dan Kahn both talked about the international cooperation, not so, not only in investigations, which you highlighted, Mike, but also in the uh, enforcement slash prosecution. And the uh, way Kara described it was there was one pie to split, and they would have to work to, as she called it, equitably distribute the proceeds of the pie, the pie being the enforcement fines and penalties. And what struck me about the Odebrecht case in that context was I really feel like the U.S. Department of Justice and SEC really may be the only uh, national uh, enforcement agencies that have the credibility, if not the cachet, to put together this type of settlement because the U.S. has led the world in anti-corruption enforcement. Um, I think that's given credibility to those two agencies, coupled with both the SEC and Department of Justice have worked very hard, not only on the mutual assistance treaty angle, which you mentioned, but also to train prosecutors to investigate and enforce anti-corruption, domestic anti-corruption laws across the globe. There are uh, training sessions, sort of week-long boot camps that the DOJ and SEC have put on multiple times where they've trained prosecutors in both enforcement investigative techniques and enforcement techniques. And I think they've built a, a very good relationship with many of their brethren across the globe. And, and really the Odebrecht case to me is the first public result of uh, some very, very uh, interesting uh, seeds that were sown by the U.S. enforcement authorities. Uh, the, the benefits reaped in Odebrecht seem to, to bear that out. Well, and, and it may be that they made that statement, for example, at the ACI, knowing full well that within the next month or so this was going to come out. 
uh, and this case was going to be settled. Apparently, this case was settled in like record time. Um, you know, the, in terms of the internal investigation, uh, the presentation to the Justice Department and the SEC, and the coordination. Apparently, you know, it was done within two years or a year and a half, is what I heard, which is really very, very quick for su such a, an investigation. But I think. You know, they had found a lot of the conduct before in response to the Brazilians, um, uh, you know, initial prosecution So, or investigation. So I think the, what I think is, you know, Kara Brockmeyer and Dan Kahn wanted to emphasize um, this point. And, you know, they always have some new theme at each one of these conferences. And the theme of the sort of globalization and their cooperation is, is a big deal. I think that this can, you know, I sort of watch their relationships with other um, law enforcement agencies and other sovereigns. And you see, you know, going back to SBM offshore, uh, where they deferred completely to, I think it was the Danish or Netherlands uh, in that resolution. So, I mean, we've seen this coming for a while, but it, I think it's maturing. And, you know, I remember you'll go in for meetings at DOJ, for example, with the FCPA people, and, you know, they'll tell you their travel plans or whatever. I won't be here next week or whatever. And a lot of times they're tra they do a lot of sort of, you know, meetings with at international forums, uh, and they, they work at this. I think it's, you know, not just prosecuting cases, but they work at this, these relationships because they know they're uh, important to the fight against uh, corruption. I mean, it's critical. You know, going back to, um, to the, I want to make a couple comments also on the case itself in that, I mean, it truly reads like a, I mean, the facts you have to admit are pretty blatant. And even in some respects, more uh, sophisticated or more ingrained in the corporation structure by having a separate, you know, division engaged in uh, or separate entity engaged, you know, in bribery. I mean, it is a little to me. I read it and I thought, you know what, this is even worse than the institutionalization of bribery at Siemens. You know, uh, it it just. And the other thing that just struck me about that is, you know, here we are in the middle of a global crackdown, you know, a global fight against corruption. And here's a company that side by side with that risk is just engaging in a flagrant, you know, uh, bribery operation. And it was just a part of their business operation. And, you know, nobody was questioning anything. They were just they, they just kept going. And that's, it just struck me as to, you know, this is like a fact pattern that I may have expected 10 years ago, but I certainly didn't expect it to keep going as long as this did um, in, in Brazil. And also the, uh, I've been involved in, you know, cartel cases in Brazil, and I know that they're pretty blatant there too. But, you know, this had cartel aspects to it as well with Braskin. But it just was, uh, you know, the facts were really just, I mean, overwhelming in some respects uh, in the number of countries involved. Well, I certainly uh, agree with that, Mike. The um, I had worked in a company 
or my last corporate position, we had a Brazilian subsidiary. And at one point, uh, we thought we were paying bribes. So they sent me down to, to do an investigation along with a forensic accountant. Mm. And in really the first morning of the first day, it became clear we weren't paying bribes, that we were being extorted by a subcontractor who was on the approved uh, subcontractor list for Petrobras. And that's when it really struck me, the institutional corruption uh, that was uh, involved with Petrobras and that the subcontractor right. we were directed to use was uh, extorting money out, out of us by uh, forcing us to, to make uh, payments for employees who did not show up, uh, phantom employees, and then uh, probably, although it was not known to me at the time, they were kicking back some of that to the Petrobras purchasing people who put them on the approved supplier list. So uh, we had really a level of institutional corruption uh, through Petrobras that seeped down to multiple levels. Odebrecht was a direct contractor to Petrobras, and the thing that um, uh, uh, I wanted to, to highlight was, or really two things, one is the Brazilian prosecutors made clear they did not want to put Odebrecht and Brascom out of business. One of the reasons that the companies were still critical to the economies of Brazil, but also they wanted to have access to the information that Odebrecht had on bribe schemes uh, really across the globe that they were involved in. Uh, the second thing, though, is if you are a U.S. company or really any company that has done business with not only Odebrecht and Brascom, but any of their contractors or any of their subcontractors, you've got to uh, – Take a look at uh, your own dealings now. Odebrecht is uh, one of North America's largest contractors. I mean, Bechtel may be larger than Odebrecht, but um, uh, Odebrecht does business in Houston, Texas. There's, they have a USA subsidiary, and that means if you're doing business with Odebrecht in the United States, you better uh, get out there and uh, see if you've got anything that uh, you need to clean up. Because the levels of corruption were so endemic to the corporation that they may have seeped to levels uh, and relationships previously we hadn't thought about before. So uh, I really. But that uh, but that te that tells you that the the I mean the consequences of this global scheme, in other words, particularly when you tie it to the contractors like that. Uh, and to Petrobras means that there are probably a lot of companies out there that have to do some cleanup. And I'm not saying they have to report it, but they have to clean up activities um, related to Odebrecht. They may be, you know, they may have been involved in situations where people have their head in the sand and payments that they were making were in fact being used to fund certain bribery payments and, uh, you know, to government officials. And I, I, I find that troubling, uh, to say the least. The other thing is that this case had the same old usual, you know, stupid activity by criminals who try to cover up their crimes once they get caught. And usually for a prosecutor, that's like the best evidence you can get, <laughs> you know, when, when you get the obstruction of justice and all that. I mean, I, was, I, I always say, Tom, every internal investigation 
somebody tries to destroy documents that they think are harmful and they think they can destroy them and nobody will see them again. But in fact, what they do is help you. They point you to where the evidence is. Because right. They try to destroy things on the server. And, you know, emails you can't really destroy unless you get access to the server. So, um, you know, it's like this case had everything that we've seen in terms of, you know, some of the more egregious uh, schemes that we've seen through the years, all in one case, all connected. And you're you're right to point out how much of this emanates from uh, Petrobras, you know, as a government, uh, you know, state-owned entity. And um, the level of corruption in Brazil is just so high these days. Uh, even you know at the, at the at the executive and congressional level there. Um, so, you know, this case uh, um, certainly stands out. Um, you know, I, I know that some commentators talked about how this really isn't that big a blockbuster because the U.S. is only getting 424 million, and the bulk of the money is going to Brazil. But to me, it still stands as a pretty um, significant, uh, you know, corruption uh, enforcement case. And I think it'll stay in history as, you know, one of the top 10 for a long time um, in its scope and in the operation. I mean, it touched, I think it was close to 13 or 14 separate countries. You know, we're used to settlements with two, involving three countries or five countries. But this was like 14 or so. Right. So now, Mike, uh, let's turn to Teva Pharmaceutical because uh, that had some really interesting uh, aspects as well. Um, that was announced, I think, two days after uh, Odebrecht. So uh, the fine and penalty was uh, $519 million. And uh, of that, 236 was uh, profit disgorgement, uh, and then 284, I believe, went to um, the Department of Justice, 283 to the Department of Justice, uh, I should say. There's a three-year uh, DPA signed by Teva uh, requiring an co independent compliance monitor. I should, we should also note that Odebrecht is having uh, a monitor as well. But uh, what are some of your initial impressions or at least uh, anything that really jumped out at you from Teva other than just the um, $519 million well, the, settlement? But the, uh, the $519 million has to be put in context to, you know, we've always heard about the pharma and medical device uh, sweep. You know what I'm saying? And uh, here we have yet another, um, you know, pharma company that's caught up in this. And I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but it seems to me like the last, um, the largest pharma medical device settlement up till, you know, before Teva was Johnson and Johnson, I think, and it was like seventy million dollars. Now, year it was several years ago, but um, this. You know, in terms of scope and in terms of punishment and an independent corporate monitorship for at least three years uh, is, you know, is mind boggling in some respects uh, that and this is a, I mean, this is no fly by night outfit, as you know, I mean, 
these guys are pretty uh, mature company, very successful, very aggressive in the competitive marketplace. And look what happens. Um, you know, so I, I find it pretty amazing that we're sitting here, you know, talking about a 520 million settlement against a pharma company. I mean, I don't think we're going to get close to that number. I know there's some other pharma companies still under investigation, but I just don't think we're going to come into a situation where it's this uh, pervasive or this significant. Now, you know, looking at the facts themselves and the country, I mean, it's, uh, for example, in the Russian Ministry of Health, we had, um, you know, payments that were made. And I guess all of this related to one drug, and I don't know right. how you say it, but Copaxin, right? Right. And, um, you know, they're basically cutting in government officials into the profits um, uh, with inflated pro profit margins. And you had like a government-owned uh, business, basically a government official owned a business and was providing repackaging and distribution services. But basically they didn't need them. And they would get a, you know, they basically made 65 million in corrupt profits to, you know, went to the, uh, the Russian company owned by the Russian official. I mean, it was pretty blatant in that sense, but it shows you that sometimes you get people money through, you know, equitable interest. Sometimes they just pay it. Otherwise, I guess they thought they were hiding something by, you know, using this company, which in turn was owned by the Russian official. Um, and then some of the other things they, I mean, these are pretty standard uh, things that at least we've seen in the uh, drug industry, uh, like in the Ukrainian case, they, they bribed the minister of health, um, and, you know, for getting their drug registered and all that stuff, uh, you know, to meet the registration requirements for, for products. And then they have the, you know, the standard Mexican operation where they're paying bribes to doctors, uh, who were employed by the Mexican government for, you know, increased, uh, prescriptions, you know, so, I mean, it just is pretty amazing. We have another, you know, DPA, we have another uh, compliance monitor, which I think, by the way, is one of the big stories of the year is the return of the compliance monitor. Um, in these two cases are pretty egregious cases and DOJ had no problem imposing, you know, three-year monitorships uh, on these two companies. So I, I mean, I just, uh, I, I guess it's pretty shocking again to see sort of the level of corruption. But you know, I guess we shouldn't be so surprised. But you know, again, Teva is no small company. They have plenty of resources, and apparently, senior executives were aware of this, and they didn't. Um, they had uh, supposedly a compliance program on paper. But they just, you know, basically ignored it uh, in terms of complying with certain requirements and all that. So were there, there were three things that uh, uh, I wanted to highlight, Mike. The first one was the um, amount of money. Well, in the bribery schemes in Russia, I should probably start there because they had multiple bribery schemes. The first bribery scheme from sort of o two o. 304 timeframe up to 2010 was they had a distributor paying the bribes. Um, but right. in 
2010, the government um, made the decision that they wanted uh, for um, their health care policy to centralize certain drugs uh, or rather uh, centralized, centralized treatments for certain very severe medical conditions, multiple sclerosis being one, the drug prescribed by um, or, or developed by Teva uh, addressed uh, or helped address that issue. And so they changed um, how the payment scheme would be made and the Russian minister in charge of that health initiative uh, who could control whether or not Teva's drug was going to be purchased uh, supplanted the distributor. So we had the old distributor go um, away. They set up a new distributorship with the wife of the Russian minister official as the owner, and then, uh, as, then as you said, splitting the profits. He made in one year or two years $65 million. Well, Teva made over $100 million in profits, as reported in the uh, criminal information. So the, uh, the amount of money Teva made was huge, um, wow. but with multiple bribery schemes over multiple years. So I think that was one of the reasons the, uh, the fine and penalty was so large. But then if I could flip over to uh, Mexico, because in Mexico, they, they had, their bribery scheme was as um, old-fashioned as it could get. It was cash paid to doctors, and it was cash paid right. directly from Teva. And at some point, someone in the corporate compliance office said, we can't do this anymore. And so the Mexican officials then actually directed the Mexican distributor network to make the payments and told the doctors that the payments would be forthcoming from the distributors rather than Teva directly. And these were open communications via email and other sources that were reported in the information. Uh, but the thing that struck me there the most, Mike, was that the cash paid to doctors was as low as $3,000. So you had very, right. what you and I might think were very low bribes paid, although they added up to hundreds of thousands of dollars over multiple years, uh, for securing huge profits. And then there was a, a final point that I have not seen in any uh, FCPA enforcement action, and it came up in the Teva case, and it came up in um, the Russian bribery scheme. And, you know, I mentioned that there was a distributor who was supplanted when they started the new relationship. Well, Teva right. had risk insurance around the receivables, uh, because when you have a distributor relationship, you can either sell the product to the distributor and the distributor can then resell uh, above what he's paid, or you can ship it and then payment is made contingent upon the distributor uh, making a resale and then uh, remitting back part of the proceeds. And there's apparently it was that second model which was used because Teva had risk insurance um, for this uh, initial Russian distributor. Uh, that's fairly common uh, financial risk insurance. Well, the risk insurer who was not named in the criminal information uh, stopped insuring the payments with the Russian company because of the risk of bribery and corruption was so high. So here you had a true third party, an independent insurance company of, of some note, who had a standard insurance product, but because the risk was so high with the Russian distributor, they ceased doing business or at least writing that coverage. And I've not seen that in any other enforcement action where an insurance company raised a red flag for uh, yeah. the company. 
It's yeah, we, I found that you know, and we, we talked. Yeah, I think I think that's fascinating because it shows you again, sort of all the people around you that can raise this issue. Um, and you know, I always expect more audit firms to raise these issues. Um, and there, and I think there's only one case I think that you and I discussed where there was an audit firm that actually reported a, a company. Uh, to the government. But here you have, uh, that's a great point about the risk insurance. I also think it's amazing that, you know, here these guys just gave the Russian government official an equity interest. They knew that this person had an equity interest and the profit they would make was in accordance with that equitable interest. And the only other case that reminded me of was the Hitachi case, where the government officials, again, you know, bought an equitable interest in an entity that was ultimately used as a way to funnel bribes. Uh, and so to me, once you engage in these equitable type interests where there's ownership interest, you make a good point. Then like an insurance company will see an ownership relationship. And then that that's probably what triggered this, at least on the, the risk insurance basis. Hey, why is this government official in this chain of ownership here, right. um, at least if they're doing their job. And that makes it easier for a third party, like a risk insurance company, to say, hey, this doesn't smell right. You know, a, a very similar thing happened, for example, in the joint venture in Akzif, where you had com- surrounding, you know, you had people in, related to the transactions that were raising issues. And that comes up as well. And here, I guess this is really the first time that I've seen an insurance company. You know, you have banks who raise the issue or people who are doing certain transactions at times. But here, to have an insurance company raising that is pretty amazing. I mean, they're pretty conservative usually uh, yeah. in that yes. sense. So, so the other, the other, I, one last issue I wanted to raise was. Um, what was interesting, though, about the Mexican set of facts was that they, they, you know, they they sort of crafted the arrange the, the the charges based on a internal accounting controls failure, and not around bribes, uh, you know, per se. And I wonder, I don't know if you've had any thoughts about why the government used the system of internal accounting controls and not just said, hey, you guys engaged in bribery. Um, because I thought they had adequate evidence of uh, bribery, um, you know, going back to what you were saying, where they were paying cash. But maybe it was after the cash stopped that they had a harder time proving it. No, that's that's a good point. And it was really driven home to me uh, because in the SEC complaint, it, it really fleshed out the Mexican bribery scheme in a way that was not laid out in the criminal information, and which uh, is uh, explains why uh, there was really no criminal prosecution around the Mexican bribery scheme, yet it was a part of the civil um, in, uh, component of the enforcement action. Huh. That's interesting, though. Um, yeah, I, I just – it wasn't in the DOJ paperwork – really fleshed out at all as to why, you know, they, they crafted it that way. So, 
Well, Mike, uh, two uh, stunning cases uh, the week before Christmas, um, and uh, we've got a couple more days left in the new year, so who knows what it may foretell. But uh, thanks very much, and looking forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This will be my last last podcast in 2016. Start next week with a uh, wrap up uh, with Mike Volkov of uh, top cases, top issues uh, from 2016, and take a look at uh, some of the things that uh, might come up in 2017. I have two requests for you. The first one is if you are listening to this podcast on iTunes, if you would rank, uh, or excuse me, rate our podcast, it would help with the rankings. The second thing is if you have some questions you'd like answered on developing a mailbag episode, so email them to me at tbox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. If you're listening to this podcast before December 31st, I hope you have a very happy and safe and joyous New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. And if you're listening to this in the New Year's, I welcome you into 2017, and hopefully your 2017 will be better than your 2016. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.